0: With support from the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, I'm Chris Damgen,
1: And I'm Ryan Kruger. Welcome to Pints with Planners.
0: On today's episode of Pints with Planners, we will be joined by Steve Nigren, founder and CEO of the Serenbee Community, located in the Atlanta, Georgia metropolitan area. He is here to share his experience with master plan communities and designing with nature. Here is his background in his own words.
2: I am Steve Nygren, uh, raised from a generational farm family, uh, then went into the hospitality industry and then uh, in my seventh year of retirement as a uh, reaction to urban sprawl, uh, became a leader in uh, community uh, activism to change zoning and now I am a developer to prove the points that we brought forward.
1: Before we begin this episode, some background on the show format is important to share with our listeners. Pints with Planners is recorded in a live setting that captures the nuances of conversations over a pint. This includes background conversations, planes, trains, sirens, motorcycles, and more. As you listen to this podcast, imagine you are sitting with us joining in our discussion of the global challenges we are witnessing on our street corners.
0: Thank you for tuning in for this broadcast of Pine Swift Planners. We now join our conversation with Steve Nygren about master plan communities and designing with nature.
1: All right. Thank you for being here today, Steve. Wonderful to have you. And we're going to go ahead and kick ourselves off like we do with all of our podcasts. Uh, We're going to ask you some icebreaker questions, get to know you a little bit better. Since you've got such an extensive experience in the restaurant industry, we thought it would be interesting to get an idea of maybe what your favorite meal um, might have been if you've got something that comes to mind. Favorite meal, favorite restaurant, um, however that question strikes you.
2: You know, so many restaurants, so many meals, so many experiences, I think the entire atmosphere when I... Think about it is um, Moncas, the old fish camp uh, uh, north of San Francisco. That was a, a memorable uh, for the food, the atmosphere, probably the conversation. But an evening that uh, you know,
1: comes to mind. What about you, Chris?
0: You know, I'm going to keep it close to home for us Portlanders, and uh, I would say for me it was eight years ago, and I'll still remember it. It was a beautiful September, early September, late afternoon evening, and. Uh, my folks were also in town. and we were, we were visiting Portland. I hadn't lived there at the time. We went to a restaurant called Paley's Place, which is in the uh, Alphabet District, Knob Hill, Port of Northwest Portland. Vitaly Paley, who's really a, a renowned chef in Portland, that he and his wife operated. And I still remember to this day how good the tartar was as an appetizer. It was so good I actually ordered it for dessert. But that whole meal from start to finish, sitting on a beautiful porch on a 78 degree day, you, you couldn't have asked for a better experience. It was lovely, and I
1: still taste it to this day. I feel like I spent a lot of time down in New Orleans. So you and I have talked about this somewhat extensively on some of the podcast episodes. Um, but there's a little spot. Um, we were coming. We were down there for um, the uh, jazz festival, and there's just there on the side of the street a woman selling a uh, whole different series of uh, crawfish that they had uh, boiled It was actually all um, Vietnamese style, so lemongrass and a whole bunch of other just Great spices and flavors. That side of French bread, and we ordered like two pounds of that. And just sat in the park and just enjoyed that. And that that still that me- that meal and that memory sticks with me quite extensively as well too.
0: Oh man, jeez, it's hard to beat. Yeah. Hard to beat. Yeah, good seafood any day of the week for me.
1: And I, you can't really go wrong with a meal in New Orleans. There's many places that come to mind, but that one really still stays with me. So, Steve, one thing that, that does
0: unite the three of us here is we all have Atlanta experience. Uh, of course, you live in the Atlanta area. Uh, both Ryan and I spent a couple years both in, in Atlanta at various points in our lives. And um, Atlanta is a great spot. It has tremendous food, good culture. They're doing a lot of cool planning things down there. And, um, but, you know, from time to time, it gets a little frustrating. And we are curious to hear... What has been your most frustrating experience uh, living or being in the Atlanta area? Whether it's traffic or dealing with the airport or local politics, whatever it might be, just give us one. Just out of fun curiosity.
2: Well, I tend to not get frustrated, but rather do things, something about. Them. So a lot of those issues you become involved in. But um, I think the most frustrating thing I had was. Uh, being involved in a local campaign for mayor, and you can have different opinions, but when you know someone is actually a crook and you tell your friends who are serving on various committees and they don't step away, that was very frustrating. Uh, that person actually got elected mayor but then later went to prison. So uh, to, to um, uh, be justified but after the fact of damage is very frustrating.
1: I mean, I think that that sounds like a very relatable uh, political experience in our current day and age. So that's unfortunate that they didn't heed your calls there at that point. But I imagine it only encouraged you to continue to stay involved in what was going on in your city around you and continue to be a leader in community development. I know I've had my fair share of experiences of frustration in Atlanta, but most of them come down to the airport. I mean, I've, I've talked about this when we had Shipra on. I talked about my experiences at the Atlanta airport. I can't really pinpoint one because there's been several, but I'm just going to say Atlanta Airport, if you get stuck in that part of purgatory, I feel like you're just going to have to bear with it, get through it, but generally it's a pretty frust- frustrating prospect.
0: The uh, the longtime humorist uh, Louis Gizzard, or I think that's who said it, uh, had a great saying. It says, no matter if you're going to heaven or hell, you have to go through Atlanta to get there. Yep. So uh, that's always stuck with me. Um, mine, you know... I recall, you know, I learned to drive in Atlanta. So as a result, and with my New Jersey background, I tend to be—I I used to be aggressive. Now, in Portland fashion, I may be more passive-aggressive in driving. Um, sitting on the downtown connector, which is effectively the merger of uh, Interstate 75 and 85, where you have two major trans-trans-transnational freeways that just merge and create this eight lane-wide behemoth through downtown and still fills up with traffic sitting in, in the downtown connector um, when you see so many lanes and the idea of induced demand is running through your head and it's just oh man I would rather be anywhere else than, than here and I have sat in that segment at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes and being stuck in traffic and it was just mind-boggling
1: well and it's amazing too when you come over and you see just the expanse of pavement it's wow. It just blows you away. And that's the issue
2: of where we choose to live and have for the last several decades and the way we have chosen to develop areas and fund it. And uh, uh, all those are issues that uh, have have driven me to do a lot of the things I've done. Uh, And by the way, next time you're you're stuck in Atlanta's airport, just jump in a cab and come to San (laughs) relieves everything, take a later flight. We're just 25 minutes from the airport, always. Sounds like a great deal. And never
1: a traffic congestion. (laughs) No, not going that way. (laughs) No,
2: in in, in, in 25 years, uh, I have only had one accident that that delayed me.
1: Well, that's quite exceptional. That's good to know. And yes, my next next trip through, I'll make that a priority. (laughs) We're getting into some of our discussion questions now. Uh, you know, you hit on right there, you know, that Serenby is close in proximity to the urban area. You know, it's an intentional master plan community. You've got around 600 residents located in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how Serenby got its start? Um,
2: I was um, um, very involved in Atlanta, uh, opening restaurants. I uh, had 34 restaurants in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, around the country. Uh, and I was what, uh, on what I call the treadmill of life. Uh, serving on boards, uh, had a, a, a great company uh, uh, m- those last years, 6000W2, so this was a large company. We had an incredible house in Ansley Park, which is the uh, in, in the center of the city. Uh, I, had, I could walk three blocks to the Botanical Garden and jog at the city park. Two blocks the other way, the High Museum, Symphony Hall, restaurants on um, uh, Peachtree, and we thought life was just fabulous. Uh, we had the pool, the media room, uh, every, everything that you could want. And in 1991, our children were 3, 5, and 7. And my wife saw on the back of the Georgia Preservation newsletter that there was a historic farm for sale just south of the airport. Uh, well, we thought that was curious. Uh, number one, that there was open land because we were very urban people in in everything we were doing Uh, and when you have children three five and seven you're looking for afternoon things to do so we called clarified that we weren't interested in buying anything but did they have animals in the barnyard and if so would they mind if we pulled in just to show our children Mm -hmm. Hmm. and of course anyone that has anything for sale says come on we arrived they had the Shetland pony saddled and we bought the farm (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we rented the main house out um, my wife fixed a shack in the back in case we ever wanted to spend the night. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I, I thought, well, gee, this close to Atlanta, it's a good investment. It pleases the four women in my life. My, my uh, children are all daughters, um, and um, we'll come out, you know, maybe a couple times a month. to move you know, this will be fun thing to just kind of have. Well, my wife fixed the shack, and the family wanted to go every weekend. Oh, gosh. They chose for vacations rather than Disney World to go to the farm, where we had no toys except a puzzle for rainy days. And <clears throat> growing up on a farm, I could hardly wait to get away from it. And so this was kind of ironic to come back. But I realized that when you have children, you start seeing the world through a different perspective. And to see my children connecting with nature was a real value shift for me. And so meanwhile, some of those things in the metro area, whether it was politics or traffic or the way we'd grown, uh, uh, sort of boiled over at the end of the three years. And on one uh, January uh, morning, after having spent a long weekend at the farm, uh, I made the decision to sell the company, to sell the big house, to resign from most of the boards, and to literally step off the treadmill. It was a point of, of uh, resignation that uh, I had an incredible Rolodex, and yet I felt I was making very little change. And we, we, we had a restaurant on Pennsylvania Avenue just down from the Capitol and helped a lot of senators and congressmen get home at night. So, but you could make very little change. And so I said, I can put my arms around my family, and that's the most important thing I could do. And so we retreated to the farm, bought a little bit more land, uh, put in some of the trappings like the pool and the bigger house and expanding the old 1905 house. And then uh, in 2000, we owned 300 acres, and my daughter and I were on a jog along what was then our property line. And the bulldozer was bulldozing the forest next to us. And I ran out and stopped him and said, What are you doing? And he said, We've just been hired to clear the trees. I guess they're putting houses here. Hmm. Uh, In an effort to uh, contact the owner, who was a retired doctor two counties away, uh, I contacted other landowners and ended up with another 600 acres under contract by the time the doctor returned from Europe and I found he had sold it to a neighbor to put a pasture airstrip in. Wow. Uh, And so here I am sitting with now 900 acres. I realized that I couldn't keep Showing up at closings for land, and that a thousand acres really didn't protect you from urban sprawl, and so I look at it as my wake-up call that while there were not houses immediately going in that forest, it was going to happen, and that led me to really looking at what we were going to do. Uh, Very fortunate, a good friend of mine was Ray Anderson. That name, something if anybody's in the environmental movement, because. Uh, he discovered the carpet squares, created Interface Carpet, and after reading Paul Hawkins' book, became the first U.S. industrialist to put his company in a carbon neutral footprint. Mm-hmm. And so, at dinner with Ray and his wife, I, I was talking about this frustration. I can't buy enough. What do I do? And i are saying, Ray, you know, you know all the smart people. You know, who, who, who do I need to talk to? Mm-hmm. And so, Ray uh, asked the Rocky Mountain Institute to facilitate thought leaders. And so in September of 2000, uh, 23 people showed up at the Serenby for a two-day conversation uh, led by uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, Georgia Tech documented that. So we have all that uh, documentation. Now, these were the thought leaders of the day. And when you put it in perspective, in 2000, the first LEED building hadn't been certified. Uh, these voices were few. Uh, and anyone talking about this were considered liberal tree huggers. Uh, how far we've come since 2000 in these 18 years that now every Fortune 500 company requires a certified building because mm-hmm. we understand now, irregardless of what you think about climate war and you know, where you are politically, it makes economic sense to preserve our resources from a dollars and cents and that and, and, and lifestyle. So, so we've come a long way. Now, that meeting, uh, I was a little frustrated because uh, I said, Ray, I'm just trying to save my backyard. <laughs> I, I've tried making change before, and, and you can't do it. Uh, who's going to help me with my own backyard? You, you, yeah, This was a great discussion. And so Ray, in his gentle way, kept introducing me to other people and pushing me. And finally, at, at some point, I can't remember at what point, uh, he pushed me through that threshold of passion. And, and suddenly I realized... No one was really doing this to the degree we were talking about. Uh, and, and I had to do it. We just had to do it. And as we visited various models in, in uh, whether it's seaside that began new urbanism or uh, the uh, prairie crossing outside Chicago that were trying to, to, to deal with land use changes or even going back all the way to Davison in, in, in California. All these great models in, in, in development really had not helped the area, but rather had accelerated the disturbance of the area. <clears throat> and I realized that in the development people, in economics, people generally don't do the right thing from a model, it's through regulation. Yeah. And so I spent the next two years bringing 500 landowners together to change zoning on 40,000 acres. Now, this was people that were pro-development, land speculators, to people that were preservationists and people who found this paradise, rural paradise, on the edge of Atlanta.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so, uh, you know, I didn't want to move way out, miles away from an urban center. So th- th- this, this seemed great. Uh, and so the real lesson there is if you bring people together to talk about the issues and possible solutions, they'll generally come together. And I have a, a whole series of maps that shows how we dealt with large landowners and then smaller landowners all separately with the same issues now these are the two groups that battle each other over most zoning battles Mm -hmm. we brought them separately together with a common vision Mm -hmm. and then together we went forward to change zoning the organization I formed Chattahoochee Hill Country Alliance by the time we took it to the local government we had 80 percent of the land paying dues the 20 percent that weren't paying dues to support it also didn't oppose us they never showed up for the mm-hmm. voice so we, we passed this unanimously which wow. is just really amazing yeah uh, then or now to be able to do that in land use and development practices so one question that i would have for you because it seems
0: like you know you were obviously a civically engaged individual even before you got to that point what had uh, kind of pushed you to the a measure of, of looking at planning or planning theory was there any one conversation among maybe that group was it something you read like how, how did a restaurateur someone who's been in hospitality effectively become a master planner and, and a developer um, you must have read or seen something at some point
2: well there wasn't one thing when, when I really started becoming aware that we were going to number one we had to come up with a vision to change the entire area. And what I remembered was the countryside of England. Uh, We had a dear friend who lived in Selborne, uh, which is uh, about 70 miles southwest of London. Mm -hmm. Um, And so visiting her every year, we really were impressed about how all the density they placed in the hamlets, villages, and towns because after World War II, they couldn't afford urban sprawl, right. no. so they put good land use. So that was, a, that was a model that really stuck in my mind as, as we were going forward. Uh, and uh, Rocky Mountain Institute helped me find uh, Phil Tapp, uh, who was an academic, uh, did his doctorate on the English village system, and became a trained uh, sacred geometrist while he was in England. Wow. Hmm. Uh, so these were a lot of the concepts that we had been looking for. So uh, uh, I, I tracked Phil down uh, to talk to him. Uh, so that was, one, that was one of the big things. But also, uh, in those six, seven years of retirement, we took a lot of time to take the family to Europe, and we traveled a lot. And, and all those images of where did we respond to, what did I like, what kind of places do we gravitate back to, uh, that was certainly foremost in my mind as we were thinking about going forward, and then the you know the Ray Anderson and, and, and all those connections. That was that was an environmental. So while New Urbanist was a movement, they did not look at any of the environmental issues or agricultural issues. Uh, it, it was it was merely density, but not really a total land use of looking at the, at the total spectrum. And and I didn't see anyone doing that except Prairie Crossing. And they had, they were giving the balance between density and preservation in the same area. And they put the farm, but they put the farm over in the corner to where it really wasn't integrated. Mm -hmm. So it was all these positive things plus how could we do it uh, in in a more engaged area. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And so all these influences started started uh, affecting what we were going to do
1: and now as far as and it sounds like so as far as the education goes and kind of your integration into that process it was a bit more organic it was consulting with experts it was continuing to build that foundation for how you were able to execute this plan from what I understand now you guys maintain a master plan for Serenby you guys still maintain that active master planning effort for Serenby is that a living document, and how do you engage the, uh, your uh, constituents in order to update that?
2: Well, it's a constant living document. So, uh, w- w- when you look at the master plan, mm-hmm. um, y- you have to look at the larger scale, and that's one thing that I don't think we always do. And, mm-hmm. and, and continuing today, uh, developers, city planners, we have a tendency to look at the block, the acres that we're going to deal with, rather than the effect it has. And there's various tents and various ways to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I mentioned, we brought, we brought 500 landowners together to change zoning on 40,000 acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, the Chattahoochee Hill Country Alliance is 65,000 acres. So if you have an Atlanta perspective, that's half of the inside of the perimeter of Atlanta. Still undeveloped for the first development. Uh, If you look at the West Coast here, Napa Valley is 45,000 acres. It would fit right with the inside. Uh, Imagine a Napa Valley well-planned where everything had to be in Yonville and Napa and the villages, and you didn't allow anything on the roads. That's what we're talking about. Uh, When I looked at the English village system, one of the biggest changes is buildings are not allowed to follow the road out of town. Huh. Just think about that. In you know, across America, just that one rule—how different it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty profound. Uh, yeah. It would be. Uh, you know, incredible. With your Atlanta perspective, imagine driving down Ponce de Leon, and there was two miles of forest and farm between Decatur and Atlanta. Uh, it would totally change about how we think about our cities, our traffic, mm-hmm. and, and everything. Uh, and so
1: how we live with nature, really, exactly.
2: And so that, is, as we move forward in all this, it was cluster development that affected me. And then watching my own children connecting with nature, how important that is. And and I can talk more about yeah, yeah, yeah. that in, in the book Richard Lube wrote 11 years ago about nature deficit disorder.
1: Now, as far as the master plan itself, and I think what we're interested to learn a little bit more about is how you engage your um, residents in order to determine how they would like to... I mean, obviously, this master plan community is a brainchild of yours, but now you've got uh, a community that lives there, probably has a little bit of a life of its own, uh, although it's got influences from you. How do you engage with them to understand a little bit more about how they want to see the different aspects of the community develop and grow? So
2: now I remember where I was headed when I was pulling you out and bringing the size of it. So Mm -hmm. uh, through the land use effort, we so activated the the community. Now we broke ground under these terms with the county Mm -hmm. on Serenby in 2004. Mm -hmm. But we had so empowered a community to take possession of their own future that we petitioned to become our own city in 2007 Mm -hmm. on 40,000 of now the 65,000 acres. Uh, it was amazing that the legislature agreed to let us take that much land into a city. Uh, and this is an area that's basically poor. Uh, it was farm with poor education. But we were able to show Serenby's projected tax base, and they were able that we could stand on our own. And so they granted us cityhood in 2007. And this is by a vote uh, of, of the entire community. So now we've empowered not just the residents of Serenby, but all of our neighbors. And now we have a city council, a mayor, a planning board for the greater city. Oh, wow. And then within Saranby, this our master plan, of course, has been approved not only uh, by the county, but in, in uh, development of regional uh, influence through the Atlanta Regional Commission. Mm-hmm. So uh, our entire plan. And it... The underlying issue is we move all density that's that's approved or perceived approved, somehow over the south it became an, an, an idea, and, and maybe across the country, that anyone is entitled to one housing unit per acre. So no matter what the law says, everyone thinks that is an entitled right, and so we, we, we move all all the density into 30% that would normally be. So if you have 200 acres, you move everything to 60 acres and you save the rest for anything that's normally zoned under agriculture. So forestry, ag, uh, recreation, any of those kind of things can happen. Uh, So so we have 40,000 acres that has to go through a whole process of city zoning with planning and what have you. And then we can... Serenby, it's more like a PUD. Mm -hmm. So we have a master plan of how much we're preserving, how much we're developing, and basically where we're developing. And so I, as a developer, can switch that up to a certain degree. But then when we add other areas, then I go through the entire planning process process with the city itself. Gotcha,
0: So drilling down to Serenby itself, um, you know, we. We have now close to 600 residents, is that correct?
2: That's right, yeah. over 600 now. So
0: can you describe kind of a characteristics, if you can, even a kind of a, char- uh, a typical Saranby resident? Are they you know, working adults, empty nesters? Uh, are they commuting into Atlanta? Are they working from home? Do you, do you have a pulse on, on that type of thing? They're all those
2: things. Uh, it, it's interesting, in this day and age, and, and I think this is, uh, you, you know, a, a couple of words we... Shy away from is master planned communities or new urbanism uh, because those are all development models. We really don't fit those.
1: Uh, I think you p- describe yourself as an intentional community. It,
2: it, it's it's an intentional, and I even have trouble with that. We're mm-hmm. building a community, yeah. and it doesn't have labels. And because it doesn't have labels. We're just like towns always have been. Mm-hmm. We, we have uh, independent residents in, in their 20s and in their 80s. We have families, we have single people. Uh, we have every race, every sexual orientation, every political uh, view. Uh, it's, we have enough variety that we have the friction that's necessary for a good varnish, as I look at it. <laughs> uh-huh. And we've come through an area where we self-segregate. And many times it's because of the labels we put on the planned development to really target one demographic. And, and that's the One langu- section
1: of the market. That's
2: right. And that's the language that our uh, financial institutions all like to hear. Mm-hmm. Because then that gives them comfort that, oh, this this segment is going to be able to buy. So I, I, I like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm... I'm I'm sensitive to terms because I think terms have got us into a lot of these troubles.
0: Well, that's very interesting you say that because I think that's been one thing that us as planning professionals observe is at least the historic pattern of intentional communities. And this dates back frankly hundred years, going back to Garden City movements mm-hmm. or New Urbanism to a degree. You know, there is sort of that marketability, and then what happens is, yeah, that certain segment of the population is drawn to it, or because of lending practices, it requires that. Mm -hmm. So, how difficult a topic of conversation was that for folks who were investing in it, either institutionally or on their own? Individually, yeah. Yeah, that you could articulate that vision, since it's, uh, as you're saying, it's kind of a different one from anything that's been done before. or.
2: True well, historic pattern, if you will. It was very difficult. Um, you know, I was I was out here with this passionate vision of what we had to do. Now, through my passion and my wife constantly baking and cooking, and then getting an entire community as they hosted coffees, we we activated people through passion and food. You would show up at the meeting, and and so we were able to bring these diverse groups. Who some of the early meetings, it would remind you of the worst. Zoning meetings you've been to, but we brought we brought were able to bring those groups together. Uh, then when I said, "Okay, it's my responsibility to take part of my own land and demonstrate that this happens," and so with passion we moved forward to take the planning. Uh, we we then entitled through these new regulations, uh, 200 and 23 acres, and and that was an interesting test because. We had all these new concepts, working with universities. We totally took away Fulton County's planning. They agreed, stripped them. They hired a, a uh, code writer,
3: mm-hmm.
2: locked us all in a room. Ten days later, we come up with new zoning codes. Wow. I am the first then to come forward, and I had to have 23 variances. And I thought, oh, my God, how it really demonstrated how hard this was. Now, we had we were so careful that we didn't want strip malls. So we wrote all sorts of regulations in to prevent strip malls. Well, all of a sudden, when I'm coming forward, I find those same regulations applied to my courtyards that had shops and things opening onto it. Uh, you know, we'd done so much. So there's unintended consequences many times to the regulations and by the time it gets down a few years the people trying to enforce these don't know what the writers intended mm-hmm. and that's also caused us a lot of it. so anyhow interpretation is a part of that application it's it's unbelievable it, it's uh, I, I remember later sitting through a zoning meeting and the zoning commission which I wasn't on but a participant debated for an hour what a comma meant and I'm standing up and say, I was in the room we wrote it this is what it means well now it could be this and that and I Oh my goodness, even in our own thing. So anyhow, um, but then t- to show you the whole, so, so, so I go through this whole thing and now I'm ready to come forward. I just knew it was so exciting that investors would line up. You know, I, I was never going to lo- borrow money again. And the investors, no one bought. And we did this elaborate box. I shipped them here and there. I just knew we, I was so passionate. And a lot of them tell me how you know hard they laughed driving back to the city. that I was going to do this wild thing. And, and, you know, and, and then some of my close friends were coming out wanting to know where the marijuana patches were because they knew I was on something. <laughs> so where is it? <laughs> Come visit me. There you go. Uh, and so uh, then it was, okay, I'm going to have to borrow money. Yeah. And then the banks didn't. Because
1: they didn't know exactly what how this fit in their boxes either. Financial
2: institutions look in rearview mirrors and so when I'm plowing forward as fast as I can into new territory now luckily I had the same experience in Midtown in the 70s yep. and I believed in Midtown I saw it was one of the few grid areas transportation everything was about it. and nobody everyone had turned their back on Midtown it was where I put my first restaurant because I could afford it not that I had great vision but mm-hmm. you know real estate was dirt cheap well I ended up buying property in midtown and then at the end of the 70s became head of the alliance we changed the zoning in midtown in the 80s for walkable communities when people weren't doing that mm-hmm. and all that property has really appreciated
1: Absolutely. to incredible
2: levels so it was through leveraging that property in midtown and downtown decatur we had the half the whole square in downtown is how i got the money to do the first section of the ceremony. So, I never convinced anybody to go along with this, and we were, uh, so, all the financial institutions told me I was crazy, mm-hmm. but I had passion. The real estate community said, this isn't going to fly, you're, you, you, you don't have, half the people have to park on the street, you're not planning lawns, this is going to fail, and somehow that passion was so strong that even I knew I had to do it to demonstrate it, and so, what I had borrowed was money to do the infrastructure on the first 40 houses. It's mm-hmm. one segment of one street. And uh, people had come down, and I had shared this idea. And so a lot of people that knew me in circles, we by this time, we'd opened the outer buildings that we had uh, fixed while we were coming down on weekends. So to control the flow of friends, we put bed and breakfast rates. So people would come that we didn't always know, you know, stay the weekend or what have you. So I told them about these crazy ideas for a couple of years that I was coming up with, and they would give me their card, and I thought, they're just being so nice, and "That's a great idea. Let me know. And so when I was going really going to do this, I said, well, I'm ready. I, I, I've secured the money, and here's 20 uh, lots I'm releasing, and it was a, a, a few live works, a few townhouses, a few cottages, and a, a couple of state And uh, my sister-in-law had said she would build uh, a cottage and, and uh uh, a friend said he'd build a state house, and we said, well, the kids are leaving the college, we'll mo- build a townhouse. Because people can imagine, for us, a townhouse. And we'll put a restaurant across the street. And we'll have four structures, and people gradually start learning what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, those first 20 lots were gone in 48 hours. Wow. And I raised the prices 20%, and six weeks later. Mm-hmm. So we built that whole street out. Yeah. And 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 then I had nothing to sell. And so I had to entitle the next. And this was just, Um and so... The market and the need understood what I was doing, even though everyone involved in development, from the bankers to planners to the real estate people, thought I was nuts.
3: Hmm.
1: That's fascinating.
2: I had to work totally with universities because everybody else thought I was crazy. Now, all of those consultants that Ray Anderson brought, they never charged me a dollar. They were hmm. so excited that I was going to step out that they all have given me through the years whatever was needed, uh, and so that's where we get—we we allow institutions to become experts, and many times they become in 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 what they think is the pattern, and actually it's a rut. Hmm.
1: Well, that's really fascinating to have that ability of foresight, but the passion you, you spoke about there something that especially for those of us that are in planning I think that's part of what drives us but we don't always necessarily understand the sort of foundational aspects of that passion so it's very interesting to hear you articulate how you describe that to others you're able to build upon that and ultimately come to fruition when others around you may not have totally understood where that foundational component was of your passion that's pretty exciting stuff you know you you talked about in there previously talking about the rough surface to apply the varnish I thought that was a pretty fascinating quote Um, You know, and that's something that as we're looking at our communities that we're designing, you know, we're confronting complex challenges, complex issues, and really trying to uh, encourage open dialogue. There was a CityLab article written earlier this year. uh, We were quoted as saying, "Is while Serenby's model could not solve all of the major societal issues currently impacting our country, we do not shy away from confronting complex issues and having an open dialogue about them. Tell us a little bit about how you're encouraging that open dialogue within your community. We're, we're always looking for examples on how people are able to be successful in that level of discussion. What have you found has been a really great way to engage folks of all backgrounds?
2: Well, I find that, that we come forward with really respecting other people's opinion. Mm-hmm. That I don't think in, in whatever we're doing there's a right or a wrong. There's, there, there, there's a lot of sides. And, and if, if, you, if you take different perspectives... And honor them, it's amazing what you can do. It's just like, uh, I mean, what comes to mind if if you have a a, a group of uh, of, of, uh, rectangles and you think of all as separate rectangles uh, and, and you try to change it, all you're doing is creating a one dimensional in your own view. Where if you honor that, you could possibly come together with, with, with a, a cube, a box that has different sides to it but it holds together mm-hmm. in something that's tangible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we have done. We have not tried to change views. We have tried to find a, a, a program and a place that everyone's views fit. And it's why I was able to move forward with diverse groups, with property rights groups, and in the property rights, you know, I'm talking about generational southern farm attitudes mm-hmm. that, that that did not want somebody coming from the city telling them what to do. Um, and to bring those people, to empower them, to understand that we, I wasn't trying to change it. I was actually trying to help them get what they needed. I, I remember after one of the big... Really, it was it was when I had gotten the two largest landowners to come on board. And then I, I I wanted to be able to go to our local government and speak for fifty one percent of the land. So I, I sorted the tax records so that I knew who owned fifty one percent of the land. And it turns out there were only thirty six of us. This was these are the largest mm-hmm. landowners. This was all land that would probably fall into development hands, whether it was the people who currently own it were pro development but the economics of it meant they were, it was anyone with 180 acres or more, it turned out. And so I thought, oh, I've got all this information, and they're all, you know, they're going to come together. It was disaster. <laughs> After 90 minutes, I called an end to the meeting. Uh, the worst were the generational landowners, because they had grown up together. They knew each other. And there was the part that said, bring on payday. Daddy always said, one day this land would be valuable. Yep. And the other said, don't you dare touch it. I want our grandkids to, have to walk down the same ditch banks and have the same pastures and experience so they were passionately opposed and they called each other awful names across the room publicly without any and then you had the land speculators who were there trying to navigate their position and then you had people like us i mean one uh, doctor and his wife who was a lawyer and they had horses and cattle and this was their third move they they had been in Cobb and, and alpharetta then they were over in fayette this was their third move and they said we don't want to live two miles out from the city, but we want this rural atmosphere. So they were willing, you know, so there were people like that. Um, well, so after that bad meeting, I thought, I've got to get more things. And so this is when the Urban Land Institute had done the study on uh, the, the fact that all the bankers love golf courses, and they would fund a golf course, because they love the premiums that those lots facing the golf lots were bringing. And, you know, that's talking banker language. Yeah. And... Uh, Urban Land Institute did a study that 92% of the people who own those lots played golf twice or less a year. (laughs) So they were buying them for the open space, not for a golf. And so I really use that as a big thing about no matter where you were in this perspective, it was the value of your land, whether it was the value of the preservation or the value of the land. And if we could bring those both together. And so it was, I remember calling... One grumpy old man, 80 years old, he was of property rights, and I knew he was going to be difficult. And so he said, nobody's going to tell me what to do with my land. And I said, precisely. I said, if, if, if your neighbors end up selling and you have a strip mall, you have just lost total control of your land. Mm-hmm. I said, I lived with it in Colorado. I saw how it happened. And I said, you have no power if you stay silent. And I said, however, if you'll join this conversation, we'll come up with some things that gives you power to where you can have a say over your land. And he thought about that for a minute, and he said, "Are you going to have that peach cobbler?" And I said, "Absolutely." And he showed up. So it was it was a combination of thoughts. So
1: so it's, it's food and, and passion. That's what and, you talked about. And,
2: and I see what happens today. And too many times we're trying to bring people around to our way of thinking, rather than understanding where they're coming from and seeing how many sides we can put on the box to get what works. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's that's really powerful as far as meeting people where they are and understanding that you're not, I worked in customer service for a long time. One of the, I think, rookie mistakes that's made by folks that are working, especially in customer services now, customer services in the public sector, private sector, it's ubiquitous. You have to listen to people and help get them what they need not what you want, not what you think they want, you have to actually do that listening component in order to be able to formulate a strategy that can help them reach their goals. Okay. And then reach simultaneous goals, but if you're not listening to what they're having to say, you're probably gonna be working at cross angles from one another.
0: So, and you know, you, you talked about, you know, the interaction with the nature earlier on, and, and Cerebi has been, by all accounts, designed with nature. Um, You know, in previous interviews, you've stated that other communities should look to Cerembi to formulate their own community design identity uh, to ensure access to outdoor amenities for their residents and certainly the importance of that open space that you were describing, like the golf course. Um, If if community development officials don't have some of those natural resources or or access to capital that, well, not even capital, but just, you know, ability to influence that you had when you... Form CERNB, how much you advocate using kind of the example that you put together meaningfully in, in future community development uh, proposals for, that can be replicated
2: elsewhere? Well, too many times people look at CERNB and then they focus into reasons why we can do it and others can't. And that's a compound. Uh, because we have concepts that can, can be taken to any place. Uh, Let's look at, um, uh, okay, nature, which you mentioned. Uh, Now, while, yes, you might not have 70%, I'm talking about connecting to natural nature. Uh, And we have not done a good job of that in many ways. Now, one of the simple things that can apply anywhere, urban, rural, is looking at our, our, our parks and our stormwater. Very few... Governments connect the two. Many times they don't even know each other. Now, I think these should be under a common department um, because they're looking at two complete different things, mm-hmm. but actually it's totally integrated. Um, and a lot of our infrastructure in some of our cities is is deteriorating. And so this is an incredible opportunity to change that conversation. I think if you look at the old fourth ward. Uh, behind uh, uh, the, the the Sears building that that um, has been totally done in the Pont City Market is a good example. Now this was a two million square foot redevelopment, but uphill from it was a stormwater issue that the city had to deal with if this was going to move forward. Mm-hmm. And Everybody had kind of ignored and and that basement, and so they had to do it. And so. The the, the the public works came up with the traditional thing of putting things in hard surfaces which is a whole other subject in stormwater mm-hmm. and I could tell you about how we, we, we fought that but here this was the traditional and someone in city government raised their hand and said there's, got, there's, there's other ways, there's this whole idea of, of, of bioretention coming forward we can't afford it, now that's the first thing either I don't have the land or I can't, can't afford, afford it. it You know, those are the, 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 uh, the, 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 the easy ways to opt out that I'm not going to put the energy to try this. Uh, but someone persevered and said, let's just, let's just see what it would look like and what it would budget out to be. Well, it turns out that it was a million three less to do it in the environmental way versus the traditional hard pipe issue. Uh, you now have a park amenity that people
1: come to Maintenance costs are probably lower as well. Maintenance
2: cost, and, well I mean, you can see what you want, but, here, but here's the key thing. This was in an asphalt area, warehouses, parking lots at best. Today it's mid-rise housing.
3: Hmm.
2: Now I, I, I encourage the city that they need to really publish this a lot more because it's not only the cost savings, not only the quality of life, but the tax base compared to what they have and what they have now these things are no-brainers and yet we have too many places where we're still doing the same old engineering because we opt out if I don't have the land and it's going to be too expensive. So that's one area that i do not care where you are now. Cerenby is a great example because I mean it was one of the things I had to actually break the law to do the right thing because all the consultants to not put my stormwater in hard pipes Hmm. and so we have bioretention paths Next is on my paths, I have a path with edible landscaping. Now this can happen in a lot of urban centers. One simple thing urban centers could do is change a couple lines in the zoning. Every developer knows what they have to do for the automobile. How much asphalt, how many turning lanes, how many parking spaces. You can almost memorize it by the zoning codes of where you're developing. Now where you are, how many things do you have to do for the pedestrian? Not a lot. Most people don't know it. If any place you're putting housing, if you had to create or demonstrate your future path to natural nature, and everybody's going to say, what do you mean? You mean put a park in? No. Natural nature. Mm -hmm. Where does natural nature exist, no matter where you are? Our stormwater. Every raindrop has to find its way to the local river. We've turned our back on it. We put it in pipes. We have, because of the speed, we have polluted all of our tributaries in our cities. So we've turned our back to them because they're not an asset; they're an eyesore. And if you suddenly had to start looking at that, you would start figuring out restoration and preservation of all of our waterways in our cities. So you, you see how I'm saying Serenby, from what we've done is a demonstration to where you could take it. Really, it takes all the way to policy change. Agriculture is another thing. Uh, you know, we were the beginning of what's now termed agri I'm not sure I like that or don't, but a New York reporter, after visiting Serenby, and then looking at a couple other places, labeled that. And, and you know, I worry about agri-washing or whatever you want to talk about it, because you know, a lot of developers see the value now of farms, where it was kind of crazy. But it, sh- it shouldn't be just about the farm. It's the whole understanding of foods. So at all of our crosswalks, we have blueberry bushes. We have edible landscape. And, and now in the new community, it's all medicinal landscape. Why aren't we doing that in more of our places? The, the, the schoolyard garden is a wonderful program, but why are we still doing ornamentals on the walk up to the front door of the school? Why, why doesn't edible foods and grazing become part of our public spaces
1: everywhere. So you, you can see how the, what we're doing there could apply anywhere. Well, in that designing with nature, especially the stormwater component, I'm our floodplain manager, that really is something that we're trying to help advance in our community, that if we were to have a flood, for example, we're going to have impacts to the ability we're going to be able to serve our residents. How are some of those things outside of the stormwater impacts that you are doing Um, How are you guys having those conversations about hazard mitigation, reduction of risk, those types of impacts, uh, in addition to just the initial development? How
2: we've handled our stormwater, we're not going
1: to have floods in in the
2: right places. By doing the right thing, you naturally are going to mitigate a lot of hazardous things. I think um, uh, a good example is, is how we're building communities and connecting to natures and our attitude about protecting our children. So we now have a fearful society with children who are really not allowed into natural nature. Uh, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with Richard Lou's work, Last Child in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote that book 11 years ago and, and uh, I had three different people send it to me. And I sent Rich a note and I said, thanks for giving voice to what we intuitively realized when we moved our kids out of the city in 94. Uh, and, you know, I, I just intuitively felt it. And we had an acre in Ansley Park, and if you know, that, that's just unbelievable. That was yeah, the that's second a, largest. I that's mean, we, a
0: large there. <laughs> it, you, you know, and,
2: and, and I described earlier how convenient and wonderful that was. And so we gave up a lot of what we perceived as convenience, as importance when we moved out there. And so we'd been there six months on the farm full time and at dinner one night. Uh, our girls are, at this point, point six, eight, and 10. And I said, are you glad we moved to the farm? Because, you know, there, there was a lot of changes. And I thought, oh, yeah, now we have horses, we have bunnies. And it was pause, and our 10-year-old looked at me, and she said, the freedom. That was the father that grabbed, that grabbed at me and said, what do you mean the freedom? And she said, "Well, you know, we had that big yard in Ansley, but we knew you were always looking out the window to check on us huh. and we could never ride our bicycles on the street unless an adult was with us and here we're free Yeah. and that you know when you hear that I did not realize that I was as uptight as I obviously was or that my children were aware of it and that's the kind of society we have uh, and Richard Lou's book really brought a lot of the research together. He, he, he was an uh, investigative reporter, and this just all came to him. So he put this forward and, and realized that part of our children's brain is not developing because they live in such structures built in social environments. Uh, and that's serious stuff that's all come about because of fear. Because every crime, abduction we hear about, no matter where it is in the world, we perceive it as in our backyard, and so we're doing all these things to fence our children in. And um, you know, a, a couple things really come to mind, and it, it, it's a picture that, that, that Rich has, and it's, it, it's a group of kids who are out in nature, and they've crossed this stream that's shallow water, but there are rocks. And all the older kids know how to hit those rocks to get across without getting their feet wet. And so they've all gone on and the camera is in on about a three-year-old. And you can just see by the expression on his face that he's trying to figure out if his legs are long enough to hit those stones to get across to go with the other kids. Now today, few kids are in examples like that where that, that brain is exercised. And if they are, there's a parent that picks them up and puts them on the other side. And that is a huge disservice we're doing to our young people. And we wonder why people can't think? It's because we have lived in a fair society and we've deprived them for places where they can actually develop a thought process to where they can reason. So this this is you know some of those things that really bother me. One question I would have, though,
0: kind of to not so much push back on, but, you know, does it require a retreat to a more pastoral or country setting in order to accomplish that? And the reason I ask that is I think of two clear examples, one which is rather local to Portland, and that would be, say, the Beverly Clearinghouse, books, right, uh, where you really had effectively little urban adventures that seemed to have that measure of freedom in an urban setting. And then looking at one of the seminal thinkers in planning, at least modern planning, Jane Jacobs, how she described Greenwich Village and the ability for kids to play on the street within a setting, albeit in an urban. And I think a lot of us planners try to figure out ways where we can have that community engagement in an urban setting. But what I'm hearing is that in your particular case, you retreated from that urban setting to a beautiful area where obviously that might be afforded because of the geography. Can that not be replicated in an urban setting, or does it really require us to? Absolutely
2: not. There, there, there's two key things. Um, uh, I, I believe it's um, eyes on the street. Uh, if you look at, you know, I, I would suspect kids can wander here. I, I know people who who live in New York that let their kids go right on the in subway. subway. Yeah. Eyes on the street are a key thing. Uh, I read somewhere where some of the highest crime is in gated communities. <laughs> now, we have gone through a tendency, through air conditioning, to where we don't use our front porches. And we don't even build front porches anymore. If we do, we put what was remembered as a facade that looked like a front porch, but they're not wide enough to put a rocking chair on. So I, I, I think we turn turn back into living in public spaces so it isn't just that is in a nature place it's that we have front porches we have people walking to their mailboxes we have people that know their neighbors you know we have people that move to serenby and they say within six months they know more people than they lived in the community that lived 30 years that has nothing to do with pastoria it's it's community development through design it's that's right it's what i call the accidental collisions where 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 community starts and the opportunity for that is much greater in urban centers than pastoral
1: shifting a little bit to another area of interest that we have you know we, we our big area of focus for our podcast is looking at the examples looking at the conversations that are happening on our street corners looking at the challenges we're seeing in our city areas but across all of our communities and, and trying to figure out comprehensive solutions One of those is um, housing affordability, and I know that there's been talk of housing affordability as far as creating energy efficiency. Has there been any talk of any sort of subsidized housing or partnerships with other um, entities that might be creating, whether it's federal partners or other state partners, to finance uh, maybe more broadly representative mixed income communities?
2: Well, yeah, thanks for asking. I think one of the big things is people uh, talk about where's the affordability. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's an attitude of, gosh, um, these 80 acres should be everything to 40,000 acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and while that, that's, that's true, and I have a lot of ideas on what we could do, and I'm looking forward to doing that at some point. But right now, we're in the middle of affordable housing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The last thing CRM needs is affordable housing. Uh, what that area needed was a balanced tax base. Understood. and too many times you know because what's happened is in gentrification affordable housing is displaced what there's not enough talk about is the communities that are going bankrupt or having to reduce services because they didn't keep a balance on their tax base so while affordable housing is an issue what we should be talking about is a balanced tax base and then you know whether the issue is affordable housing or executive housing uh, it's amazing how how few governments understand what their line is, the price of a house, to deliver services. You know, in many communities, that, that's hovering around 200000 somewhere or not. Which means you need as many housing units above that line as below it to keep a balanced tax base. That's where we should be looking and then determining what our need is and how do I incentivize it and I have a lot of ideas on different places. Now, Cerenby, when I looked at it, it was affordable housing. We could never do anything if I didn't bring executive housing in image. So many times people say, oh, it's just for the rich people. Well, it's because we needed to create an atmosphere in an area where no executive would ever move, had never moved. There were a lot of things about education, quality of life, all I've had was open pastures and that wasn't highly valued. Uh, so it's understanding the bigger pictures before we drill down on what the needs are. I have lots of ideas on, on, on affordable housing, I'm, I'm dying to, to um, you know, do some of that. I think one of the important things you have to do though is look at the issues of affordable housing. Too many times we've built affordable housing trying to copy bigger houses. We saddle people with something that is not high quality, mm-hmm. and has high energy bills. Mm-hmm. So, working—Are you familiar with Rural Studio program at Auburn University? Yes. Yes. So, th- 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 this is an incredible program. It is uh, the first partnership in 20 years is with Serenbe. Wow. And we are demonstrating how they can take these affordable housing units to the market. Now, we have built two of the 500—they're 500, 500 square feet. Um, And and, and we're looking at how can they be totally energy efficient. So because of what they, you know, their their whole program is is, is they teach architects. Mm -hmm. And their client has to be someone who needs shelter. Mm -hmm. And so this has been an incredible program. But they have not been in a place they could share those plans because it's an academic measure. And so they realized there was both an opportunity and responsibility to have plans they could take to the market. And in looking at who could help them, they ended up coming to us, which is an incredible. Here you have an Alabama school working with a Georgia developer, and it actually took an agreement from their state legislature because of the funding. So, <laughs> a, a literal act of the legislature yeah, exactly. to, to, to allow this partnership to happen. But Auburn's only, what, 75, yeah, 90 it's, it's minutes it's away it, from it's, it's you? In it's in our neighborhood. Not, not far. So yeah. here, now, now we're able to monitor energy. We, they're able to use this as, as a demonstration for reporters. We use it as our art farm. So we have invited artists. So. The issue is this is 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 efficient architectural integrity to where someone's given an affordable house. It isn't charity. Too much of our affordable housing is looked at as charity by the people who are occupying it. Mm-hmm. And it should be high integrity. But, but we shouldn't try to copy the living spaces of someone who has a $400,000 house and a $200,000 income. It, it, it should be how can people live with dignity and high design, but it's a lot more common spaces with the community. It's you know it, it, it's how do we do this so we have decks and fire pits to bring that experience to. So uh, we, we just, you, you look in Europe, it, it, it's about integrity, you know. Affordable housing, you should feel good when you open the door and the doorknob and how it feels in your hands instead of a piece of crap that's going to come off half the time because we try to give it to the we try to give them a big experience as cheap as we could, and that's mm-hmm. the brief thing. We should give them a great experience. At Sarenby, no matter what economic level you're on, we talk about living large in small spaces. And that's by living in your community, which also addresses security, it addresses engagement and how you feel about each other, and especially in seniors, one of the biggest problems
1: is depression. Depression due to loneliness. Mm-hmm. Lifelong living opportunities for our seniors. So they can stay in their communities our whole lives.
2: In America, we're doing some of the worst things for the bookends of our community, and that's our children and our seniors. And we're tending to put them in prisons, I don't care what you call it,
1: and we're saying it's for their own protection. There may be concrete prisons, but they're still prisons nonetheless. You can't get access to services, can't get out of your community, it feels like a prison. It's terrible.
3: Yeah.
2: Know there, there was one person, a story that you know, five years ago, someone who had gone to Washington, made some of these same issues that, you know, they were in the, in the center with Obamas and said, hey, you know, you can't really change policy, and had been raised in Colorado, or in uh, uh, Georgia, had come back, they were deciding where they were going to live, they'd rented a house, and they had a contract on a typical, what they thought was the house. They had one child expecting the second, and they came to a, uh, a, a um, uh, event at Serenby, all sorts of things. They came back, they couldn't understand what they were seeing. They were attracted to it, and it made no logical sense mm-hmm. to them. And yet they were try- you know, they came back and they couldn't they couldn't put the finger on what it was and a whole a whole interesting story that went on. And then they had this contract on the house, they were moving towards closing. And so I said, I just I was trying to figure it out. And he says, I went to the house by myself, nice neighborhood. I walked out on the back door and he says we had you know the house he had in was kind of up on the hill and I could see down to everybody's backyard. And they all had a perfect fence with a perfect playground. And he said, oh my God, it dawned on me. At Serenbeet, the kids are all running free. There's hardly any back fences. Yeah. And I was about to put my child in a self-imposed prison, and I didn't even realize
1: it. Just on one other thing, on the housing side of things, while we were in that topic, just talk about accessory dwelling units briefly. That's and great. Then I think we had maybe one more question and then we'll close out. And we're pretty yeah. much.
0: No, this has been a great discussion. Really, yeah. thank you.
3: Thank
1: you. Go ahead. So following up on our talk about affordable housing, um, and I really, you know, really take to heart a number of those comments, you know, talking about displacement, talking about looking at holistically about how we're looking at not just affordable housing, but ultimately creating more resilient tax bases. Cause community resiliency is just that. It's financial resiliency as well as, well as resilience to other factors, environmental and whatnot. One area of housing development that we're seeing in Portland and Oregon more broadly is the creation of accessory dwelling units. It's become a focus of our legislature. We now have requirements to encourage those in our communities. Have you had, uh, in addition to the conversations with Auburn about some of the smaller square footage homes and some of those affordable options, have you also seen some of your homeowners or have you had discussions internally about creating mother-in-law suites Uh, for other property owners that already have houses maybe as an extension to either uh, gain some new revenue streams or ultimately just create additional living opportunities for family members. we had those conversations.
2: So number one is we made sure in our Chattahoochee Hills zoning regulations that it allowed it. Not only allowed it, but encouraged it. Uh, Which is amazing how many zoning codes don't allow it. Yes. Uh, And they put all sorts of restrictions on it and and, and try to really make it to where it's a guest room and you can't have somebody living in it. So, uh, we absolutely uh, encourage it. Um, my personal, the townhouse we built, uh, I, I built an apartment uh, on, on the garage above it. So, it's a carriage house with an apartment above it. Uh, and uh, that was for our daughter initially came home from college, and that's where she lived. And then now that's a rental unit that we have that, that goes out. Uh, we pre design it. And so, in our pre design, we have a number of units that are pre designed with that. Uh, at B we as the developers now, design a lot of the product and then sell it wow. and so uh because we are in the hills uh, we have we leave the topography as much as we can exactly. and that, that's a whole story in itself on, uh, on 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 how we did that like we built, built communities 70, 80 years ago mm-hmm. you didn't bring the bulldozers in and flatten it yep uh but this gives some hills and so we have a lot of townhouses and the lower side of it we put a housing unit in oh okay now, that opens to a bocce park, a courtyard, so it's not like the back area. It, it's just a gray, so it's, and so this allows rental property. Uh, and uh, our middle daughter, when they were living part-time in Seattle and part-time in Atlanta, uh, they bought one of these. They had a permanent resident in the apartment, and then when they were in Seattle, they put the upper unit in short-term housing through our in-program, which is like a and a, a b uh, type thing. So we provide a lot of economic incentives for mixed-use housing, uh, which which is the big thing. So I don't think it is affordable. I think it is a whole mixed range of uh, because
1: of living options.
2: Yeah, living options. You know, if I'm a teacher, I don't want to tell everybody I'm living in the affordable housing piece. And so, and, and so we have we have three million dollar houses with rental properties in. You know, well, why I not? I I have. You know, I have $400,000 with also a rental unit that helps a person that could have never bought that mortgage. And, and so there's, it's an essential piece in a lot of ways to keep, get, get people at various places in the economy, whether it's the young person on their first home or the person who's downsizing and really trying to manage their their resources at the end of life.
1: And that's important. I mean, and I think that one of the things you hit on there is the fact that you don't want the whoever's living in those affordable units to necessarily be recognized for that decision, that location, and I think we've seen that.
0: So wrapping up here, um, we are supported by a partnership with the uh, Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, and the OAPA currently provides resources covering a wide variety of planning-related issues in support of Oregon planners, but I would argue planners throughout the country and around the world. Um, What other resources or professional organizations would you recommend you have certainly t- touched on a couple uh, earlier in the podcast but do you do you have any other resources that, that you like or that may have shaped your vision or your your approach
2: well there are, there are a number when you look at the many things that serenby is doing whether it's arts whether it's agriculture whether it's land use so uh, the american plant association we got one of their early awards one of the key things is they awarded our county commissioner for supporting us mm-hmm. and and so you know that's important I believe the Urban Land Institute is doing a lot and, and, and through their councils to bring things forward. Um, if, if you look at your preservation groups, uh, interestingly we are, we are uh, going to host a, a, a group of national organizations dealing with, with, with uh, farm uh, availability, so it, you, we have, are working with the National Farmland Trust. Uh, the Conservation Fund is now funding some money along this, the Urban Land Institute and the Rodale Institute. So we're bringing national organizations looking at, at, at the farm. Uh, so there's, there's not one, it's to understand the whole community. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of bright lights out there looking at the issues. And it's to understand whether it's a, a local, state, Federal or, or or national or international um, uh, health and wellness is one of the key things we have to look at today. Uh, I often think back in in that two thousand, there were voices about the environment, but everyone was you know you had Al Gore, Prince Charles, uh, Paul Hawke and Ray Anderson, but you could almost name them. Understood. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and everyone knew there was a problem, but we sort of said. It's just I, I don't know where we go, you know. Well, pros and cons about lead, but one thing is they gave the, they they gave the pattern, and we know a lot of things we have to do, and that's one piece. Mostly on energy and water, mm-hmm. but but there's but we 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 now, while there's still a lot to be done. We at least know some of the things that the, the common people know what, you know, kind of what that program. Today we know we're in serious problem with. Health. And there's no one that's articulating or presenting. It's just kind of this same scattered thing. So I feel that when health, we're where we were 20 years ago. And that's going to really change. And one organization that's really doing a lot is the Global Wellness Institute. And they are really launching, and this is the global operation, looking at the research and some of these things. And so we are really key. Uh, I uh, Every six weeks, we have... Uh, a conference call with I think there are thirty countries, uh, representatives from thirty countries, and it's how the built environment is affecting our our health and well being, and you can trace it a lot back to how we're building where people are expected to live. So, so there's a lot of places and a lot of resources, and it depends on where you're where you're looking. So, uh, Global uh, Wellness Institute, if you're, they are putting all the research on that. Uh, Children and Nature Network has all the Ways to connect uh, kids to nature, and now uh, uh, we're partnering with the League of Urban Cities, and they have. Um, we are are, are are working with cities to create new policy. Uh, I'm Trying to remember, Portland's one of those. We we, we now have eleven cities, um, and that that's really looking at good examples that can be an example of how we change policy mm-hmm. in. How we plan and regulate our cities. So it isn't about taking kids out to nature, but how can we actually have programs and nature in where people live, especially affordable housing neighborhoods. Steve, if people want to learn more
0: about Serenbe or the work that you've done, um, can you give us the community's website or other resources? Absolutely. So
2: there's several resources. So our website is com, um, and you can go on there. Uh, if you're from the development community or interested in, in bringing a developer around to this way of thinking, we have Nigren Placemaking, uh, that is a conference this fall. We're doing our fifth conference. People literally are coming from all over the world. We keep it small, so that we, and we move throughout the community. And it's five segments, and we bring the people we dealt with. So one segment we bring in uh, in policy, and we bring in the government leaders that we dealt with uh, to do that. Uh, in the planning, we bring in our land planners and architects and deal with that. In our community engagement, we bring in the community people. So how do we deal with arts and public programming and all that kind of thing? And, and, and the history and then an environmental segment. So Niagara Placemaking is a great conference. And uh, If you can't remember Niagara Placemaking, if you go to Serenby, history, learn more, it'll take you right to that information. Uh, we also uh, partner with Tim Beatley, a uh, um, Uh, At the University of Virginia, who has written the books on biophilic cities, and when I started looking at what we're doing, we're we're we're, we're several silos. We're we're New Urbanism, more than that. We're intentional. We're ag. We're all these things. What we really are is a biophilic design approach. And so now, working with Tim Beekley at the University of Virginia, we host the Biophilic uh, 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 Institute uh, conference. Uh, That will be next April. Will be our third one. This is really geared to policymakers and educators. So most of our major universities have representatives that come, and many cities are sending representatives now uh, to that conference. And that's more of a think tank, here are the issues, here's what we should be doing.
1: I was just saying to Chris, I think that I might have to try and convince him to let me come to that next year. We'll have to see about coming down in April. Sorry,
2: you're being pushed out of the
0: way by me. (laughs) You're going to Maryland anyway in August. That's that's true. (laughs)
3: Well
1: thank you so much for your time. You can today. each come to one of them. Oh, perfect. There we go. There we go. We'll we set we're set up. Look at you try to bring people together. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your time today, Steve. We really appreciate it. You've been an exceptional guest. And we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon coming to visit uh Serenby. Cheers. Cheers. Well, thank you
2: guys and, and and thanks for trying to bring this conversation to a greater audience because it's it's really important that we change our built environment.
0: To learn more about Steve or any of our guests, visit the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association webpage under the News and Media tab.
1: Additional support for Pints with Planners was provided by the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association. PWP's theme music was written by Chris Lesane. Haley Schiller is our graphic designer. Production and editing was handled by me, your host, Ryan Kruger.
0: The views and opinions expressed on this episode are that of our guests and your hosts, and may not necessarily reflect those of the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, the city of Troutdale, or any other affiliates of this program.
1: If you have comments or questions, you can send us a message via the Pints with Planners Facebook page, find us on Twitter, or you can email us at pintswithplanners at gmail.com. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of Pints with Planners.
0: And please, as always, plan responsibly.